It would not surprise me if some of you, maybe even by the beginning of our Advent series, asked yourselves, why is he doing this from Lamentations? And why does he keep on doing it? Four weeks in a row. Uh, It's a tough question. I don't know uh, all the answers uh, to that exactly. But here are some of my thoughts of why I'm doing this. Number one, it's a book that's in the Bible. In uh, his commentary on Lamentations, Christopher Wright, who's one of the best Old Testament theologians that there is, wrote this. Lamentations, it's there. It is simply there in our Bibles. Spending time in it is like pressing the pause button, freezing the action of the drama, memorializing that moment in the story when it did indeed seem as if the story itself had ended. We must not read Lamentations without the rest of the Bible. But equally, we should not read the rest of the Bible without Lamentations, as Christians habitually tended to do. And I would almost wager a fair amount of money that none of you have ever heard a sermon series on Lamentations in your life. Another reason is that I know that some of us have had a pretty rough 18 months behind us. I know that there is, in some of our families, a lot of grief. I know in my own personal nuclear family, if you had told me three years ago what might be happening in the next three years up until today for sad things, I wouldn't have believed you. And I think it's just right to recognize it. Not everyone is going through rough times, but many of us are. Many of us are grieving. Many of us are suffering loss on all kinds of levels. And then, of course, there's the national level with COVID obviously disrupting all kinds of things. But most striking, I think, to me in our time is that people on both sides of the political aisle are concerned about whether and how our democracy will survive the next couple of years. We're in a place of crisis that most of us have not been in before. Not to mention the international level. Dark clouds gathering around the Ukrainian border. We don't know what's going to happen between China and Taiwan. Afghanistan, of course, has fallen. There's war, or the clouds of war, all over the place. Not to mention the whole environment and climate change issues. Looks like climate change will be doing damage, perhaps irreversible and devastating, to millions and perhaps even billions of people around the earth. Result, resulting in effects that we can't even foresee. And it's just, not unreal, it's just not realistic to pretend that's not happening. The book of Lamentations, and this is why I'm spending some time on it, gives us space and permission to grieve. And it gives us space and permission to speak our grief out. It gives us words. 
and that allows us to even protest the unfairness. It is not fair that someone at age 46, the principal of a high school, dies in a car accident. There's nothing fair about that. It's not fair that the 28-year-old father dies of COVID. It's not fair that someone in your family breaks a relationship irreversible, irreversibly. It's just not fair. It's a suffering that's out of proportion to whatever sin or wrong may have been done. And Lamentations gives us the permission and the words to express that. And I just want to encourage us to do that. And again, if, if you don't have those deep, those deep griefs and losses, that's fine. That's great, in fact. But if you do, would like us to just have the space to be able to say to ourselves, to a partner, to a friend, to God, this is really bad. It just sucks. And there probably isn't going to be able to be very much that I can do that will change it. That person is dead. That relationship is broken. Those islands in the Southeast Pacific are sinking. And my turning my lights off in my house extra isn't going to help that. Lamentations does not, and it's not my goal, to wrap everything up in a pretty box with a bow. To give explanations, this is why this happened. Or to fit everything in some kind of a theological or so-called biblical paradigm. If you just believe this, this, and this, then you'll be able to deal with it. Or to say that everything is really okay today because sometime in the future everything is going to be okay. I was struck this week I came across the passage in the prophecy of Zechariah which is, which is after the exile in which he talks about now Zion has come back, Jerusalem has come back, Lamentations occurs when Jerusalem's just been destroyed. For Zechariah, Zion has come back. The city is back there. It's not in its old glory, but it's still there. And Zechariah says, Zion will never be destroyed again. I think to myself, wait a minute. What about A.D. 70? When it was destroyed. And Zechariah promises that God will always love and care for and forgive his people. And I think to myself, but wait a minute, what about the 1940s? So I don't want to pack this up and say everything, it's okay now because in the end sometime everything's going to be okay. At this time of Advent and waiting for the birth of Jesus, 
I want us to look at our sorrows at whatever level you experience them. To give them words, the darkness of the night, and to realize anew that God is with us, that he is faithful to us every morning, that he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, that he hears your words, and that you are never, ever, 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 ever alone. And that's the complicated thing that I'm trying to lay out in front of us in the weeks. I guarantee you that on Christmas Eve I will not preach from Lamentations. (laughs) But let's go to Lamentations chapter 3. And I would like to read with you the first 20 verses. should appear on your screen. If you have a Bible, feel free to take it. We have a new narrator in this chapter, is usually often called the poet. So it's a different narrator than we've had before, and and the 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 way he talks and the and the subject matter then of course is also different. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. The very first verse of this chapter 3 starts with, I am the man. And this word man is very interesting. There are a number of words for man in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. One of them is um, Adam. The, the, the name Adam is the word for man. There's another word for man that is ish. So the writer of Lamentations could have used either of those two. But he used the word geber, G-E-B-E-R, which is used of a man of strength and vigor, particularly of soldiers. 
Some translate it as the strong man or the valiant man. So we have someone coming on the scene who's not just the normal man. We have a valiant man. We have a, we have a strong man. We have almost a warrior. And that, of course, makes me think of who's our strong man? Who's our valiant man? Who's a man that stands out above all other men? And that man is Jesus. And then I don't know if this struck you, and of course I've spent more time reading this chapter this week than I'm sure you have, so I I don't expect you to pick up on this. But as I read this, a lot of the language of this, these first 20 verses that we just read reminded me of Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about, in Isaiah, this, this man, this man with a capital N, is known as the suffering servant. I thought, could it be that there's some kind of a relationship between this man in, in Lamentations 3 and the suffering servant, the man with a capital N of Isaiah, M of Isaiah 53, and I thought, you better not make stuff up. So I went through my commentaries, and in most of my commentaries, I didn't find it. So I thought, uh-oh, I better not. And then I read Christopher Wright who's one of, I just said, the best Old Testament theologians living. And he says, the extensive verbal parallels between the experience and discourse of the man in Lamentations 3 and the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, especially 53, are striking. So I thought if Christopher Wright can go with it, then I will too. And I'd like to read with you Isaiah 53. We'll start with 52, verse 13. This is a well-known passage. Behold my servant, this man, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, and now as we read the rest, just remember what we've been reading out of Lamentations and just feel the parallels, feel the resonance. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him not. Yet, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of this all, of us all. So in a very subtle way, this man with a capital M of lamentations, who lifts his complaint to God, who is abused and crushed and beaten down on every side, resonates with this suffering servant of Isaiah who points ahead to Jesus, who took upon himself all of the evil that the world had to give on that cross. And here are these two men, actually three men, the man of lamentations, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and the Christ whose coming we await. And then this man changes tomb. And so we go to this very familiar lamentations passage. We'll read again from 3, 21 to 27. But this, says this man, remember, this is this man with a capital M. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So he's saying, I'm stopping my lament, or in the middle of my lament, not maybe stopping it, in the middle of it, I'm changing course, I'm changing my mind, I'm calling something to mind, and that gives me hope. And what does he call to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your, and then he turns and he speaks to God. He's not speaking to God in the third person anymore. He's speaking to him in the second person you, just like David does in Psalm 23, you remember. Great is your faithfulness. He addresses this man, addresses God directly. And then he says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is what I need, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And notice how often, three times, this word good in the Hebrew tof appears. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly 
And then that word wait in the Hebrew is also the concept of hope. It's good for one to hope, to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And it's good for a man to bear the yoke or the burden of his youth. These words are spoken in the midst of a storm that will not go away. It's not that if you speak and believe these words, the storm is going to go away. Even in the book of Lamentations, that doesn't happen. These words appear right in the middle, and then the, the, the book goes back again over the cliff into total despair and ends in total despair. It never turns up again. So the idea is not that if you believe this, then the storm is going to go away. That school principle is not going to come alive again in this life. That man who died of COVID is not going to come alive again in this life. That broken relationship, that broken marriage, is not going to come back together again. And the trauma that something like that causes on the children will be with them all their life. Not suggesting it's going to cripple them, but it's going to be there. So believing this, these words does not say, now it's going to get fixed. But in the middle of the storm that does not go away, it is good. It is tough to seek God, to wait quietly for his salvation, and to bear the yoke, the burden of youth. These are good things. In this Advent time, as we wait to celebrate again the coming of Jesus, in the midst of our storms, whatever they are, it is good to wait quietly. Because, and then he goes on a few verses later, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But even though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God has anger against sin. And he will punish and he will chastise. And he will do away with the evil. He will cut it out. He will destroy it. And that hurts. Christopher Wright describes it as a terrible reality. But God's anger is not eternally definitive of his character. The Bible never says that God is anger. Never. The Bible says over and over and over and over again that God is love. His heart is never in his anger or his punishment, or what he does to get rid of evil. His heart isn't in that. 
The man says it. He does not afflict from his heart. His heart is a heart of love. So as we wait in the storm, as we somehow grab a hold of God in the storm and, and we feel in the storm perhaps something of this unfairness and of this, of this, how can this be happening and what have I done to deserve this? And this seems way more severe than what it should be. And why is this happening to innocent people? We remember that God is, is not anger. He is love and compassion. And he will not cast off for how long? Forever. His love lasts forever, the Bible says over and over again. But his anger doesn't. So the question I asked myself this week is, okay, so there's these verses of hope in this middle, in, in the sec, in this middle section of Lamentations. And now I'm actually literally speaking for myself. How do you grab this in the midst of the storm? How do you grab this when there is so much pain? Either in your life or in the life of the lives of those you love or, or in, in our country and in the world. How do you grab this? And the first tendency is to give some tips. Read this in your Bible. Pray in this way. Perhaps go out in the nature. Or do other things. Listen to, listen to, listen to worship music. Get together with others and pray. All of those things are great things. But I think what helps me the most is to look at the man Jesus. Hebrews says, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. So my tip for you is to somehow look at Jesus. Look at his servanthood. Look at his service for you and for all of mankind. Look at how he put up with the foolish people who came across his path, including the theologians. Look at how he was humble. Look at the power that he had to heal the blind and the lame and the deaf and the dumb and to, to cast out the evil spirits and to raise Lazarus from the grave. Look at the peace that he brought. He didn't fight evil with violence. He was a total pacifist. The making and the using of weapons never came up in his head. That's the kind of person he was. That's the kind of man with a capital N he was. 
He had eyes for the marginalized and for the oppressed. The people that he looked at, the people that he saw, people that he paid attention to, were those who are on the outside rings of society. Peoples whose islands are sinking under the waters. He suffered unjustly. Betrayed by friend and family. Abused, persecuted, and killed by the empire. And you know my favorite words of his from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in his moment of deepest despair and deepest trouble, when the sweat poured out of him like blood drops, he connected with God. And when he connected with God there in the garden, it didn't mean that he didn't go to the cross. He did. But he didn't do it alone. So I want to encourage you in this Advent time, especially if there is despair in your life at whatever level, to fix your eyes upon Jesus. And that aspect of his life and who he was that speaks to you as, as you need it now. Because it's all there in this man with a capital M. And to draw close to him in the knowledge that it is good to wait for the salvation of the Lord. Amen.